And I pray, Lord, that uh, you will be glorified in, in our thoughts and in our words today. And uh, I pray that you give us clarity of thought, that you uh, enable me to uh, articulate uh, the true biblical position in this area. And I pray that you open hearts and minds to uh, receive your truth and, uh, and that you would help us and strengthen us so that we can use this in our dialogues with, with non-believers. So I pray that you would uh, confirm the, the faith of believers, uh, but also allow us to use this information to uh, plant seed and lead others to Christ. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, in case you don't know, uh, I'm Phil Fernandez. I head the Institute of Biblical Defense. That's my wife, Kathy, in the, in the back there. And uh, uh, Eric asked that I would just speak briefly about uh, moral relativism and then just kind of open open it up to the floor for uh, questions. And uh, so pretty much there's two, two key uh, phrases, if you will, that we have to... Uh, uh, get down before we even begin to this, discuss this issue. There's, there's moral absolutism, which is the belief in moral absolutes. Uh, in other words, uh, there are some moral laws that are true for all people at all times and in all places. Okay, um, the Bible contains many moral absolutes. Uh, the Bible also, though, contains some, some moral laws from God that were just temporary, uh, like animal sacrifices for the nation of Israel. So just because there's a command in the Bible doesn't mean it's a moral absolute. We've got to you know, look real close to see if it is one of God's moral commands that applies to all people at all times and in all places. Moral relativism is just basically the rejection of moral absolutism. So, in other words, moral relativism would argue that there's no objective, universal, or absolute moral values. No moral values that are true for all people, at all times, in all places. And, and by the way, uh, I might even remove of the word objective, no objective, uh, universal moral values. You might even want to remove the word objective because a lot of atheists now are... are claiming that they hold to objective moral values, you, you, you tell them, well, you, you reject absolute moral values, you reject universal moral values, and they say, no, I don't. I hold to objective moral values. But uh, So there, there's a way that they're trying to explain how there can be no God and we can have moral values that exist outside of human minds and have some objective basis at the same time. Uh, they're camouflaging that because it really doesn't mean absolute universal moral values. Michael Martin did that to me in, in, in um, our debate over the internet. Um, and, and, and by the way, there's two directions that why this is moral relativism, why it is so important for Christians, especially Christians who are in a, uh, a non-Christian or an anti-Christian environment like a university campus where you share your faith. Um, the, the two reasons is because you can argue either direction. Uh, a person can be an atheist and just recognize, well, if there's no God, then it makes sense uh, that there's no moral laws. So some, are, some atheists are moral relativists just because um, 
they reject God's existence and they see that that's a, a result of being an atheist. However, some people are atheists because they are, already do reject moral laws. No universal moral laws, therefore no God. And in fact, one of the Huxleys admitted that the only reason why he denied God's existence was he wanted to do his own thing. And if he admits that God exists, he's, he has to also uh, adhere to God's program and God's laws. And he didn't want to. He wanted to do his own thing. So he said, well, because I believe there's no moral laws, that's why I believe there's no God. And then he says, then as a, you know, a, uh, an agnostic or an atheist, I then spend the rest of my life trying to find evidence to disprove God because I don't want his moral values. Well, some guys throw God out first and then they recognize moral values go out with them. Others throw out the moral laws first and, uh, and then they realize that God goes with it. Every once in a while you'll have an atheist who's trying to hold the absolute the existence of absolute universal moral values that somehow they're just, they just come with the furniture of the universe. And my response to the atheist there is, well, then atheism is not an explanation of the way things are. It's a non-explanation. Uh, Bertrand Russell in his debate against Frederick Copleston, Copleston asked him, um, how do you explain the origin of the universe? And Russell said, we should say it's just there. Well, if someone denies God's existence but believes in real, universal, absolute moral values, then what they're saying is those moral values are just there. And then atheism uh, no longer is an explanation, it's a non-explanation, okay? So uh, if, there, if this is universe without God, the moral lawgiver, it only makes sense that it's a universe without moral laws. Um, so basically the idea that there's no universal moral laws, that's what moral relativism is. Uh, each person decides what is right for himself. That's it in its, in its purest form. Now there have been many different adaptions made to moral relativism because that's a very weak position. You know, for, for instance, pretty obvious, if each person decides what is right for himself, then we've got no right to call Adolf Hitler wrong. But even atheists and agnostics want to call Adolf Hitler and his actions wrong. Um, so uh, there's been a few changes there, but let me just throw at you a few um, uh, atheist thinkers, those who denied God's existence or at least uh, uh, doubted the existence of God. Um, and it, they were pretty much all atheists, though they might have watered, watered down their claims so they wouldn't have to prove as much. Um, but basically, let me just throw uh, four of them out at you. Uh, first, Friedrich Nietzsche lived from 1844 to 1900, was a German philosopher. If you get a chance to read Nietzsche's works, you can get, you can get all of his work in the, the portable Nietzsche, one book uh, translated by Walter Kaufman. Um, and, uh, but the, the thing is, you've got to read his stuff really close because he, he, liked to, uh, he liked to write in a creative style. So instead of just coming out and saying, I do not believe that God exists, and uh, the leaders of Western thought do not believe that God exists, he says, he, he gives a parable about a madman running through the town screaming, God is dead, God is dead. You know, and I'm a, I'm a man before my time. You guys don't even realize it, that God is dead. 
can't you hear the sound of the grave diggers throwing dirt, dirt over his head? And, and what he's basically telling them is, we all know that God is dead, uh, that the Christian religion has died, that God no longer exists. Uh, Nietzsche thought that the atheist of his day had outgrown that uh, Neanderthal belief, but uh, his problem was uh, that his atheist colleagues were still living like God was still alive, like Christianity was still a viable option for thinkers in Western culture. And what he was saying is, if God is dead, then traditional values have died with him. If God is dead, then you can take the Ten Commandments and throw them out the window. You can take the traditional values taught in the scriptures and throw them out. So what he's saying is, you guys admit that Christianity is false, but you don't live like it's false. Um, and Nietzsche rejected the soft values of Christianity because he believed that they stifle human creativity. And uh, he recommended hard values. He glorified things like war. And he wanted uh, a group of supermen to arrive on the scene uh, through their will to power to have the courage to create their own set of hard values and basically force them on everybody else. And, uh, uh, and because of that, he predicted that the 20th century would be the bloodiest century in the history of mankind, which, which 20th century has proven him correct, okay? Uh, but it would be uh, Western culture, man come of age, realizing the implications of a universe without God. Um, but um, without God, there are no, are no more, uh, absolute moral values. Man is, is free to create his own moral values. And, and so, so with Nietzsche, what Nietzsche is basically saying is if there is no God, the result is nihilism, no meaning to life, no moral values, no value to human life, uh, no absolute truth. At the same time, Nietzsche knew man couldn't live there, and so he came up with his own myth, to, the myth of the Superman, to replace uh, the, the, uh, what he thought was the myth of Christianity. Okay, But... Um, I do think that Nietzsche was the most consistent atheist who ever lived, which may explain why he died uh, uh, insane. Uh, others would argue that it might have been syphilis that, uh, that caused his, uh, his insanity, but uh, whatever the case, he was not a happy camper when he died. And, uh, and, um, uh, but I do think that he tried to live consistently with his worldview more than any other atheist. Bertrand Russell was a British philosopher, lived from 1872 to 1970. Uh, this is a quote from Russell uh, from one of his uh, essays that is today in uh, his uh, Why I Am Not a Christian. He stated this, Outside human desires, there is no moral standard. So what is right and what is wrong is totally determined by human desires. There isn't this absolute moral law that exists, an objective universal standard uh, that exists above all uh, mankind. Uh, you know, the question comes up, what if a person desire, desires uh, to kill the innocent? You know, and uh, he tried to wrestle in his debate with Copleston. By the way, you could, it's still in print, I believe. It's usually a, an extra chapter, Bertrand Russell's debate against Father Copleston, the Jesuit priest, and, uh, and Copleston was also a philosophical giant. Uh, his, he has a history of philosophy, the nine-volume set that is still the standard work in its field. And, um, but in that debate, uh, Copleston pinned down Russell to where Russell 
said that, well, basically, uh, a person could be, just as we have colorblind people, a person's desires could be messed up and they could be mistaken uh, like an Adolf Hitler in, in the area of morality. And Copleston just kept hammering him. That, that only makes sense if there really is a color green. And if there really is a color yellow and this guy's getting mixed up. In other words, it only makes sense if there is an absolute standard. And, and Russell kept dancing and dancing. Bertrand Russell was one of the most brilliant people of our century, except when he attacked Christianity. Then he sounded like, uh, to me, he sounded like a, a third grader with an attitude. Uh, it, it sounded like, you know, a little kid in a schoolyard argument where they're just trying to be nasty and say mean things about each other's mommy. And, and, and uh, so it's just, it just amazing how inconsistent he was once he uh, tried to attack Christianity. By the way, Russell's entire life was inconsistent. He protested war, fought for equal rights for homosexuals, and uh, the question comes up, why? If there, if there is no absolute moral standard, why are you condemning, condemning people for violating it? Um, A.J. Uh, Ayers uh, lived from 1910 to 1989. This, this guy's interesting because uh, right before he died, he had two uh, uh, near-death experiences, which sounded very much like evidence for God's existence, but he just... You know, denied, but he he felt like he was moving towards light, and he felt like um, all the deeds he had ever done were being uh, observed. He felt like he was being judged by the judge of the universe. And this is an atheist talking, and uh, so it was really interesting. But uh, but he also was a British philosopher, and he he argued that moral commands merely express a person's subjective feelings. So again. Morality is just what comes from each individual. Each individual decides for himself. There's no standard above all others. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre was a French existentialist, lived from 1905 to 1980. He argued that there was no objective meaning to life. He, he, he argued if there's no God, then there's no moral values. There's um, uh, no such thing as absolute truth, no meaning to life. But then he argued, as human beings, we desperately need meaning in life. And so Jean-Paul Sartre argued that we must therefore take a leap of blind faith into the non-rational realm and create our own values. Um, which, you know, I think it begs the question, if there really is no meaning to life, why even do that? Um, and this was hard for even followers of Sartre to accept. And that's why Timothy Leary said, well, wouldn't it be easier if we induced our existential leap uh, with uh, you know through LSD trips, and um, and the Beatles read his writings and the rest is history. Um, but uh, but basically, what you have with these four atheists, there is agreement in on, in two things, and one of those things is that there is no God. And the second thing they agree on, since there is no God, there's no such thing as absolute universal moral commands, moral laws. If there is no absolute moral lawgiver, there's no absolute moral laws. There are no absolute moral laws. So that they were in agreement there. Now, you will get some atheists who will argue, like I said, in the opposite direction. There's no moral laws. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. There's no moral laws. Therefore, there's no God. And so... 
Some could argue in the other direction. And once in a while you will find an atheist who tries to say, no God, but somehow moral laws do exist. But I, I, I think that's a very weak position to hold, uh, um, especially since uh, you know moral laws are prescriptive. They're not descriptive. Descriptive laws like the law of gravity, the first and second laws of thermodynamics, they're descriptive. They're natural laws. They're descriptive. They describe the way things are. They describe the way the universe operates. Okay? Uh, but a moral law is a command. It, it, it is a prescriptive law. It prescribes the way things ought to be. Um, and it prescribes the way we ought to act. Just like a prescription drug, in order to get it, you have to have uh, the signature of the prescriber, the doctor, okay? And uh, so uh, it's pretty obvious if somebody doesn't want the moral laws, they wouldn't want God. If somebody doesn't want God, they wouldn't want the moral laws. And if somebody does believe that there is no God, but there are absolute universal moral, moral laws, there is a tremendous inconsistency there. It, it, it begs the question, well, where did they come from? And, you know, you will have some atheists who try to argue that through uh, physical evolution, uh, by, through randomness, given enough time, you eventually, uh, eventually humans will evolve um, some type of immaterial aspects and so you have some really weird um, ideas. I, I don't think I don't think there's really in an atheistic universe. I really don't think there's any room for uh, spiritual uh, invisible entities, if you will. It just doesn't make sense to me. In fact, even Augustine, who was Platonic in his thought, he followed Plato in a lot of his philosophy. Uh, he agreed with Plato that these eternal, unchanging ideas do exist. But he said the problem with Plato was they're just hanging there. But Augustine said, we Christians know where they reside. Those eternal, unchanging ideas reside in the eternal, unchanging mind of God. Okay? So in other words, you, you can think of a, of a very creative thought tomorrow, and, and you might even be the first human who ever came up with that thought. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, God knew that thought throughout all eternity in, in one eternal you know we think one thought at a time God knows everything that ever will be known um, everything that can be known in uh, one eternal uh, thought one eternal glance of course the problem with moral relativism is that when a person denies them the absolute moral law they cannot be they cannot consistently condemn the actions of another person as evil Okay, they contradict what they said. In fact, most moral relativists, you know, whenever you say, you know, that was wrong what you did, Harry, a moral relativist will correct you and will say, hey, look, you know, that's not true because there are no such things as right and wrong. Therefore, you were wrong to tell that guy he was wrong. See, it's, it's <laughs> most of the time when moral relativism is thrown, thrust into your face, is so that a person can judge your actions as wrong for calling their actions or anybody else's actions wrong. And that's inconsistent. We, we, a moral absolutist can, can say, you know, hey, I, I think what you're doing is wrong. 
and there's nothing inconsistent with that. Um, Robert Everson, who teaches at Olympic College, wrote this book, uh, Theologians Under Hitler, and he argues there that Christianity led to the Holocaust. If we don't want another Holocaust, we've got to do something about Christianity. And he doesn't come right out and say what he wants to do, but I suspect he would like our property confiscated, like uh, what occurred to the Jews in Nazi Germany. Eventually, he would probably like us uh, 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 in detention camps somewhere, and you know, and the and the rest, uh, you know, follows logically from that. Um, and he obviously he's misdiagnosing the problem. The problem was the, the the leadership of the German Church apostatized from the faith, and that removed uh, that restraining influence that the Church has on its society, and that opened the door for an Adolf Hitler. But but Erickson throughout his book calls himself a moral relativist. It was published by Yale Press, so it's not a fly-by-night book. In fact, he tours Europe. That is the standard view in Europe, is that the Holocaust was our fault. And um, as, as anti-Christian as America is getting, it's nowhere near where Europe is. Now, we're heading in that direction, but um, they're uh, you know, further off than we are. Uh, but anyway, he calls himself a moral relativist in that book over and over again. Yet, time and time again in that book, he calls um, Adolf Hitler's actions wrong. And I told him, I challenged him publicly to debate me on two different occasions, and he turned it down, and, and I can see why, because you know, he, his positions are so weak to defend. But I asked him after one of his uh, talks that he gave, uh, I said, you know, in my worldview, I can call Adolf Hitler's actions wrong, because I believe in moral absolutes. But you say you're a moral relativist. He said, I am. And I said, well, then how can you call Hitler wrong and be consistent with your view? That's a contradiction. He said, he smiled, he said, I know, but I can live with it. And then he walked away. And, um, and so, you know, he doesn't have to tell that to his students, uh, but they will find out if he debates uh, a moral absolutist. So, so he just stays away from those debates, and he leaves that little chuckle, that little one-liner at the end, but basically what he's saying is it's the, the political correctness movement is actually a, a product of postmodernism, rejection of absolutes, and it's, it's, you decide what you believe not based on rational evidence. You decide what you believe based on your feelings, and then if enough people in positions of power feel like believing what you believe, then you end up with political correctness where you cram that down everybody else's throat. And so what you, what you end up having is taxpayers' money will pay professors to badmouth Christianity and Christian professors are, you know, there's not a whole lot of money coming in. And so in the end, you end up with a lot more of these guys and, and a lot more positions of power than these guys and uh, you hear one message over and over again and eventually it changes an entire uh, population, the, the, the view of them. Um, but anyway, well, just to condemn the actions of another person as evil, some type of absolute standard must be resurrected in order to make that value judgment. So it's a... Humanist, how many people here have read Humanist Manifestos 1 and 2? It, it's very, very short, very small. They were basically a bunch of atheists got together in 1933 and then later on in 1973, uh, the next generation of them did. And they basically explained how 
no deity is going to save the planet. We must save ourselves. There is no God. We've got to get beyond Christianity and all these fairy tales. Um, but when they talk about moral values, I can't remember if it's Humanist Manifesto number one or number two, they say that basically uh, human values are autonomous. In other words, each person decides what is right for himself. No one else can decide for them. Uh, just a paragraph later, they contradict themselves, and they say that... Um, uh, and by the way, the guys who signed this thing, I mean, you're talking people like John Dewey and B.F. Skinner, and you're talking the big guns in the world of atheism. But after saying that human values are autonomous, everybody decides for themselves, just a paragraph later, uh, they state that they are for uh, any sexual practice between two consenting adults. Now, that doesn't sound like a contradiction until you break down what they're saying. When they say that they're not against any, any sex between two consenting adults, it's a veiled way of saying that they are against certain sexual acts, i.e. rape, where one of the parties is not consenting, and uh, sex with uh, children. Okay? But the thing is, Christians can be consistent and condemn those actions. But a moral relativist cannot be, and that's exactly where the uh, secular humanists place themselves. So... Uh, they like to say, well, there are no such thing as these universal moral values. But then to live in the real world, they have to resurrect some Christian world values. They've got to go to Mount Zion and, and, and pull uh, at least one of the tablets uh, uh, down from God and, 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 and bring it back into the picture. So it's like Francis Schaeffer said. Oh, how many people here have read Francis Schaeffer? Um, he's got some dynamite works in his words. Some people are saying his works are outdated. They are not. He was dealing with European thinkers which means uh, back in the uh, late 70s, he was 40 to 80 years uh, ahead of where American thought is going to be. So shape is still going to be current the year 2020, 2030, uh, but at least in America. But whatever the case, uh, he, sh he showed over and over again, you can deny the Creator, but you still have to live in His creation. So you still have to live like Christianity uh, is true. And so, so basically, if moral relativism is true, there's no basis from which con to condemn the actions of an Adolf Hitler. I remember I, I saw a television debate. It was out of New York, so this rabbi had a Jewish rabbi and a, and a homosexual, an Orthodox rabbi and a homosexual were debating about whether or not homosexuals should teach in the public schools, should be allowed to teach in the public schools. And this rabbi had a uh, New York, heavy Brooklyn accent, and it had that little Jewish touch to it, so it was. I really enjoyed watching it. And uh, um, during this debate, the, the homosexual asked the rabbi, what, what problem do you have with homosexuality? And, and, uh, and the rabbi said, because it's wrong, because it's a sin. And the, the homosexual said, you can't say that, you're making a moral value judgment. So the homosexual was assuming that moral relativism has been proven and it is an injustice to, to reject moral relativism, which again is a contradiction. But the rabbi just smiled and he just held his hands up and I thought, man, why doesn't he respond? So then the rabbi read from an article where a homosexual not only wanted the right to teach in the public schools, but he also wanted the right to have sexual relations with some of the male students. Well the homosexual that he was debating got upset and says, well, I disagree with this, that guy, so don't throw that. That's not my view. And so he, the rabbi said, well, why do you disagree with him? And uh, the homosexual said, because he's wrong. 
And then the, the rabbis pointed at him and shook his head and said, but you can't make moral value judgments. And, you know, what, what, what could the, the homosexual say? And, you know, if this is the only thing you rem- remember today, try to remember this, a worldview, a system of beliefs, a worldview that cannot be consistently lived, that cannot be consistently applied is not worth believing. We, we've got to stop kidding ourselves and, uh, and you know, espousing beliefs that we just cannot live in accordance with. And, and, and modern man, you know, we think we've come so far, but uh, some of the worldviews that we are entertaining right now, uh, ancient man would have, uh, would have just found it uh, comical. Um, but we all recognize, we might not recognize evil, real, we, we don't see evil real clearly when we are the ones who want to do the evil. Okay, um, but when we are wronged, we see evil very clearly. You know, because we tend to be selfish, so we we don't think about other people's rights, but we do think about our own rights. That's why Jesus Jesus didn't say, "Do to others, you know, treat others the way you know they should be treated," because then we would still treat others like trash rather than like human beings created in God's image. So Jesus said. Knowing how selfish we are, Jesus said, do to others what you would have them do to you. The way you want to be treated... See, we have, in our conscience, we have a glimpse of God's moral commands, okay? Um, and that glimpse gets real clear when we think and talk about our own rights. But when we talk about other people's rights and how we should treat them, then it gets all of a sudden it gets foggy again. But, uh, but whatever the case, uh, we all recognize actions as evil uh, when we are wronged. Um, uh, Romans 2:14 and 15 tells us, by the way, that even non-Jews, even Gentiles who don't have God's commands written on tablets of stone, have God's laws uh, written in their hearts on their their consciences. Um, basically, I'll just close with this. Uh, an argument for the absolute moral law. The moral law, I, I touched on this uh, last Saturday, the moral law doesn't originate with the individual because if it does, then we could not call the actions of another person wrong. I.e., we, we wouldn't be able to call Adolf Hitler's actions wrong if each person decides what is right and what is wrong, if there is no standard above the individual. So then others argue, well, maybe a few individuals get together and the moral law is created by a society, a collection of people. The problem with that is it, 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 if it was if the moral law is created by the society, then one society cannot call the actions of another society wrong. So America would have no no higher standard to appeal to, no moral law above both America and Nazi Germany to condemn the actions of Nazi Germany. Now others are, would argue that it comes from a world consensus if we know anything, we know that the world consensus is, is not perfect, it's not infallible. The world consensus used to be, you know, you go way back in time, the world consensus with the, it was that the world was flat, uh, that we live in a, uh, a geocentric universe where uh, the sun revolves around the earth rather than the other way around. Um, we thought that slavery was right and that the woman was the property of the man. Um, 
in all these things, both Christians and non-Christians agreed the world was mistake. World consensus was mistaken in the past. So if it was mistaken in the past, it could be mistaken today. And another problem would be how do you really get world consensus? Um, it's usually it's it's not the most popular views that are enforced. It's usually the loudest views that are enforced. Okay. Um, you know, whoever has the most money for the political ads is probably going to win the election um, because they're going to, you know, turn a good guy into a Darth Darth Vader by the time you go to the polls or whatever. But uh, but whatever the case, world consensus, society, all these are doing is quantitatively adding more and more individuals. That's not what is needed. What is needed is a moral law that is qualitatively above man. Okay, you see what I'm getting at? The authority doesn't come by adding more individuals. It, it, it has to stand above all, all man. Uh, the other thing is, too, is even atheists like to protest for world progress. They want to move us in the right direction. They want us to stop doing the evils of the past, and they want the world of today and tomorrow to be better. Uh, the problem with that is if we condemn the actions of the past, then this eternal, this standard that's qualitatively above man must be eternal and unchanging. We're implying a standard that remains the same throughout the passage of time. Okay? And so now, if you have a moral law that is eternal and unchanging and exists above all men, um, then basically what you're going to need is a moral... Remember, these laws are prescriptive, not descriptive, so you need a prescriber. You basically need a moral lawgiver who is qualitatively above all mankind, and this moral lawgiver must be eternal and unchanging uh, to be an adequate explanation uh, of uh, eternal and unchanging moral laws which exist above all mankind. Uh, so that's that's about all I have. I'll open it up to questions, but before I do that, I just remind you, you, you might already have them, but uh, you, you might not even be interested in them, but whatever the case, uh, uh, I have my two books here, The God Who Sits Enthroned, Evidence for God's Existence. Um, we're selling that for $5. And then we have No Other Gods, A Defense of Biblical Christianity, which defends not only God's existence, but the deity of Christ, His resurrection, uh, things of that sort and we're selling this for ten dollars but if you buy both you can get them both for twelve dollars and um, uh, so if you have some interest in that you might want to pick them up before you leave today uh, you might have a friend who might be interested in them that's that's fine and if you don't feel led to get them that's fine too don't worry don't worry about that I just want to make that available so we have some follow-up materials in fact I, I I believe we have a chapter on moral relativism yeah, refuting moral relativism in, in the blue book, uh, what we talked about today. Uh, but at this point, I'll just open it up, uh, open it up to the floor for any any questions, any observations that you have, anything that you'd like to uh, uh, to share. And um, Francis Schaeffer, I think, was a great thinker. An awful lot of his, he was trained. He did have a three-year Master of Divinity degree, but he didn't have a Ph.D. in philosophy and that type of thing. A good portion of what he learned, of his thought, uh, he actually gained through conversations with non-believing thinkers. And so, so basically what I'm saying is uh, Campus Crusade for Christ staffers, 
uh, student leaders, students who are Christians that share their faith, uh, there's a world of, of information and knowledge that you can get through experience. And as far as I'm concerned, I, I don't really care how a person got educated. Uh, what, what matters to me is that the person knows what they're talking about, but you can learn a lot from experience, from getting out there in the front lines, and that's where Francis Schaeffer learned his thought was in the trenches. So, so don't feel that you have to ask a question. If you've got something that you would like to share, uh, that you've learned by experience or from reading some, some, some works, go right ahead. Uh, specifically, we'd like to stay on this topic, but if there's something else that, that has to do with sharing your faith or defending the faith, you can bring up a question in that area as well. So, Usually the first question is the toughest to ask. So. Yeah, well, one of the consequences of rejecting moral absolutes, and it's, it's pretty obvious, is that the person is implying that there ultimately there is no uh, court that they are accountable to, that ultimately they're answerable to no one. Now, they might say that, you know, like Sigmund Freud was a moral relativist, but he believed, he did not believe it was wrong to rape someone but he believed it would be a foolish decision because the authorities would probably catch you and punish you. So moral relativists will often say, yeah, there are, you know, earthly powers that you don't want to upset. At the same time, if you can get away, uh, if you can manage to do what you feel like doing without getting in trouble with them, there is no... Uh, you know, there's obviously no ultimate eternal court, uh, no eternal judge that will judge your actions. And so basically, um, it's like in uh, the, the Brothers Karamazov, the, the novel, uh, I think one of the, one of the brothers there uh, uh, states, um, uh, if there is no God, all things are permissible. And so basically, if it feels good, do it, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, um, and I'll tell you, there's, you know, there's some weird people, even in this country, uh, you go back east and there's, there's guys that enjoy hitting people. So you better hope that the guy, if he if he's, believes that it feels good, do it. You better hope that he has enough respect for the governing authorities or he's just not consistent with his views because, uh, you know, Hitler, Hitler thought the best thing possible for this planet was to weed out uh, the genes of any non-Aryans and the easiest way to do that was to uh, basically get rid of anybody who didn't fit his de definition of uh, the ideal man and uh, and so uh, you know I'm thankful that there is a God and that this God does sit enthroned and that this God has spoken and that he has told us what is right and what is wrong so that even if we can't overpower an Adolf Hitler, uh, the least we can, can, do, can do is uh, to condemn his actions and to call it wrong. And uh, it, it amazes me at how many people don't believe in such a thing as right and wrong that speak out against the atrocities of the past um, because they're acting a lot like Christians when they do. And uh, so... Uh, uh, it's really crazy, though. You want to throw God out the window and condemn Hitler for his actions. As time goes on, 
each decade we begin to our behavior gradually changes where each decade we start looking more and more the American culture begins to do things that not that we condemn Nazi Germany for doing and we don't even see the inconsistency um, I mean right now if you don't believe if you don't believe that uh, uh, a woman and a doctor have the right to kill a baby who's two-thirds out of the mother's womb uh, you're called an extremist uh, nobody was using that argument uh, in the 1940s at the Nuremberg trials when they were condemning the Nazis for doing exactly that type of thing but uh, okay. sometimes I don't read nonverbal communication so you can scratch your head or or just move an arm and this question goes through my mind. Also, the question tells a very short story and asks the question again. Why is it that it's so difficult for relativists to see the inherent contradictions in their philosophy? Mm -hmm. um, situation a number of years ago, Cliff Connectly, traveling speaker within our yeah. city, comes here almost every year. Hundreds of people out in front of a hub on the lawn. He's talking about moral relativism. I hear some students saying, okay, here comes our professor. And apparently this guy is a very outspoken atheist in his philosophy classes here. Steps to the front of the crowd, challenges Cliff. Mm -hmm. You need to hear a pin drop on the grass and get quiet. And he's just going through the juggler and Cliff graciously just lets him crawl. Yeah. And then he asks him, sir, he says there's no moral absolutes. Everything's relative, there's no truth. When he's done, Cliff said, asked him, says, sir, um, what are your views on apartheid? And yeah. It's still in its heyday. Yeah. And he just, it's evil, it's wrong. And yeah. he asked the simple yeah. question. Yeah. Well, based on what you said, how can you say that? Is that not you just pushing your moral beliefs on them? And the professor could not answer him. Yeah. What happened was he got all angry, yeah. cursed, and just stormed out of the well, crowd. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there thinking, this is so simple, and here's a guy with a yeah. PhD has never asked himself that question. Yeah. So my question is, is it simply a spiritual thing that there are blinders on them? Why is it so, why have they not seen yeah. the contradiction? Yeah, the, yeah the, the question, just for the cassette, uh, is, is basically, it, it, moral relativism is from beginning to end contradictory. Why don't these intelligent PhD philosophers see their contradictions and uh, I, I would say a couple things uh, one thing is that that chapter that I have in the, the No Other Gods book on the uh, appendix on Blaise Pascal Pascal did not throw reason out the window he believed man is a rational being what he disagreed with Descartes on his, his countrymen his fellow Frenchmen was that uh, Descartes man was a rational being period uh, Pascal said man is, is a rational being, but he's more than just a rational being. He has intuition. He, he just, just knows some things, some self-evident truths without having any evidence for them. Um, he has a will, emotions. There's so many things that influence the decisions that we make that sometimes reason is in, in the background. It's not in the forefront. It's not the... So we like to think of ourselves as being so rational and only accepting where the evidence will take us but in reality, an awful lot of the decisions that we make are based upon passion. In fact, Pascal would argue that uh, you can get the best thinker in town if there's a bug flying around his head when you're preaching. Um, 
what you're saying is going in one ear and out the other. He's more concerned about the bug. That's enough to trip up his reason to where he is not going to be rationally rational enough to, to really receive what you're saying. So that's one way to respond. The other way is, uh, I think when this was first being proposed, I think moral relativists, as it, at least in modern times, I think that a lot of moral relativists assumed that maybe they just didn't know how to reconcile that with the law of non-contradiction and absolute truth, and they really didn't heed the warnings of Nietzsche that if God goes, not only do moral values go, but uh, the whole idea of absolute truth goes. Um, but I think what we need to acknowledge is that postmodernism actually uh, prides itself in what they believe the uh, um, modernist would view as a contradiction. They pride themselves in holding to those contradictions. They think the modernist is mistaken, which again is a contradiction because if there is no absolute truth, there is no such thing as mistakes. So, you know, everybody, everything is just as true and uh, everything is uh, has the same status of falsity. I mean, in fact, truth and falsity are illusory. So, uh, uh, so whatever the case, uh, it is actually popular. Uh, uh, sometimes Okay, let's say you said that was a first-year student and he got all upset at this apologist who was speaking, a defender of the Christian faith that you mentioned, and the professor got all upset uh, at him. But let's say the professor wasn't a professor, he was a first-year student. Then I would say, well, is this possible that the reason why he's attacking the man, it's, it's an ad hominem fallacy, attacking the man rather than the man's argument, um, I could, you could say maybe it's because he doesn't know enough about his position and so rather than admit to defeat, he's lashing out. But if the guy's got a PhD, it's a big time professor on the campus, it's probably not a lack of information. There probably is no response. And I think it's safe to say, and we see this in political debates today with the political correct movement, if people choose their beliefs not by rational evidence, um, but by their feelings and their emotions, then they're not going to be able to defend them through rational evidence. They're probably going to defend them through personal attacks and an emotional outburst. And that's exactly what you see there. Actually, I, I, I think the moral relativist, what he's actually doing, they don't even have to mention any names, but it's an appeal to authority. Remember, we, Christians will always get slammed because Galileo, who happened to be a, a, a professing Christian, uh, they don't mention that, but he got slammed by this infallible pope for saying that the, uh, uh, the earth revolves around the sun.